We had 100 people come. They'd all paid £50 directly into my bank account. Uh, and at the point that they paid me, they didn't know where they were going to eat food, what food they were going to eat. And by that point, we just created this momentum that um, we were able to generate. And, and of these 100 people, none of them were, were, my, were my friends. Right. We, you know, we generated 100 actual real customers mm. through social media. Facebook was the only thing then. A little website, um, some nice kind of professional-looking branding, and a bit of word of mouth. We managed to get a listing in a couple of like London magazines who kind of picked up on us quite early. So in the first three months, we were able to generate actual real customers <laughs> who spent proper money with us. Welcome to Screw It, Just Do It, brought to you by Startup You, inspiring and supporting entrepreneurs to make a full-time living doing what you love. I'm your host, Alex Chisnell, fellow entrepreneur, Virgin mentor, and founder of Startup You, the regional partner of Virgin Startup, providing startup funding, mentoring, and support. Each episode features the stories from two entrepreneurs at different stages in their journey who talk us through their successes and failures. You get to take on board all of their learnings and none of the failure. Today's podcast is brought to you by Hayes, with the number one recruiting experts in the UK. Whether you're searching for your perfect job or looking to scale your business by building the perfect team, go to hayes.co.uk, quoting Startup You. Welcome to episode 032 of Screw It, Just Do It. I'm your host, Alex Chisnell, and on today's show, I speak to Stuart Langley, founder of The Disappearing Dining Club. Before we start, I wanted to let you know that this show is also now available on Spotify. Unlike iTunes, where you submit your podcast, you've got to be invited onto Spotify's platform. So with a potential audience of 60 million plus subscribers, I'm massively excited to grow this show's audience on there. We're a consistent top 100 show on iTunes. We were up to number 88 this week. So thank you all so much in advance for your support. And if you'd be kind enough to leave a review, then just go to your podcast app or whatever you're listening to this podcast on. Go into the search bar and type screw it, just do it. Click on the artwork, scroll to the bottom of the page and click where it says write a review. And I thank you in advance. So on to today's show and Stuart Langley, founder of The Disappearing Dining Club. Now, Stuart and head chef Frederick Bolin have thrown dinner parties in laundrettes and lighthouses, film sets and fashion stores. Stuart started the business in 2010 and since then has partnered and collaborated with a whole host of individuals, companies and brands from Google to Rita Ora to throw dinner parties that offer more than just great food and drink. Do you love restaurants, but also love dining in beautiful and unusual locations with a group of cool strangers where there are no menus and you eat what you're given? Intrigued? Let's start up. As I understand it, your background was in restaurants, bars, festivals, clubs, um, and presumably those experiences were, were all working for somebody else. Yeah, definitely. So I kind of like, I first kind of started working in hospitality when I was about 14 in the kitchen, um, peeling potatoes and, and washing and washing pots. Um, and then whilst I kind of 
through whilst I was in education and traveling a bit, I was always working in hospitality in bars and in restaurants. And then in my mid twenties, I decided I needed a proper career and I already had one and started kind of taking it a whole lot more seriously and then worked, um, through management in pubs, bars, restaurants, clubs, members clubs, uh, event kind of project management kind of stuff at music festivals mm-hmm. and then brought all of those skills, uh, together into being, um, to spring dining club. And before that point, had you ever thought about starting up your own business or was it a sort of accumulation of all those experiences distilled that, that came up with, um, disappearing dining club? Yeah, there was, there was never a point really where whilst I was kind of growing up, I thought to myself, I have to open my, open my own business. Mm. I knew it was, I was working with people who, you know, in, in bars, for instance, all they ever talked about was what their bar would be like, the bar that they would maybe open one day, mm. where in the world it might be, what it would serve and how it would look after its customers. And I kind of enjoyed those conversations, but it was never kind of like the prime focus. It was always about trying to do, for me, it was about doing a good job and looking after people. Um, and it was, and getting paid to do so. Uh, and that seemed to be, uh, I seemed to be in a good place, um, working for the people. But then I kind of came to the end of a period of, of work and I just literally just kind of decided that it'd be nice to throw a party, uh, which was a dinner party. And, uh, if I could make a few a few pounds on the side from it, I didn't really have that kind of that dream that that was the thing I was working to. Um, I just liked uh, looking after people. I liked working in the hospitality environment. I liked the kind of people I would re- be working with, and I liked getting paid for essentially kind of having a good time and helping other people to have a good time. That was kind of the main motivation for me to go to work every day. And to do it in a, in a way that was good, that was genuinely good, and to improve standards of work and so on and so forth. Um, but then I just, I, I kind of came to the end of a period of work, and I just thought for fun, it would be good to throw a party, which became a dinner party, and make a few, make a few quid on the side, mm-hmm. whilst I was trying to decide what my career was going to do next. Um, and then, so I threw the first disappearing dining club dinner party, which is our first dinner dance in, uh, October, 2010. And at that point there was no real kind of urge to turn it into a company. It was just about doing something, doing something, doing something well, and let's book and do it properly and see where it might take me. Um, and then the business has grown from there. And so did you, after that first event, did you kind of look, look back on that experience and think there's something in that and how can I take that further? Um, well, I just, even though for that first party, we kind of spent, I uh, spent time and effort on coming up with a, a you know, a, a funky sounding name, which now is very annoying every time I have to spell it out to people on the, <laughs> on my email address. Um uh, to come up with a bit of an identity, come up with a bit of artwork for the brand and uh, and and do things properly. And, and from the very first party, I launched it as a one I launched it as a monthly party. Right. So there was there was uh, an imperative to do it again. Yeah. Um, to kind of at least appear like I was taking it seriously as a real project rather than it just being like a one-off. Mm. Um, and so I've, I, you know, 
a certain amount of pride then went into making sure that the second one was better than the first one and the third one would be better than the second one. And people took notice of it and then new opportunities came along very quickly. Um, and so it just seemed that because other people were enthusiastic about it and I was enthusiastic about it, that it was worth getting my head down and just getting stuck in and seeing what could be made of it. Mm. Maybe it was going to be, maybe it was going to lead me on to my first business, but it ended up becoming my first business. Yeah. And where, where was the location for that dinner party? So the, the first dinner was 30 mates in a pub in King's Cross right. that uh, somebody I knew had bought. Uh, it was like a right old dirty little boozer on a side street in <laughs> King's Cross. It wasn't open at the weekends uh, because there was nobody in that part of town at that particular point. Um, it had no kitchen. Um, it had uh, really limited facilities. The toilet stank. Um, and we kind of went in there. Uh, it had chairs and tables. We used their chairs and tables. We built a little kitchen on the bar using kind of home cooking equipment or Argos cooking equipment, cheap and cheerful. Uh, made the toilets smell as 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 nicely as nicely as we possibly could uh put a dj in called it dinner dance served dinner played some music called ourselves disappearing dining club um and then had a great little team of staff who kind of came and helped out again friends from the industry right and we just kind of looked after everybody and then a month later we did it again the same 30 odd friends came back they all brought a friend each Right. Um, so we doubled our we doubled our doubled our numbers the following month, um, and then the the strange thing happened for our third event, uh, which was our first kind of Christmas party December event, which was in a gallery uh, a basement underneath the gallery in East London, and we had a hundred people come. They'd all paid fifty pounds directly into my bank account, uh, and at the point that they paid me, they didn't know where they were going to eat food what food they were going to eat. And by that point, we just created this momentum that um, we were able to generate. And, and of these 100 people, none of them were, were, my, were my friends. Right. We, you know, we generated 100 actual real customers mm. through social media. Facebook was the only thing then. A little website, um, some nice kind of professional-looking branding, and a bit of word of mouth. We managed to get a listing in a couple of like London magazines who kind of picked up on us quite early. So in the first three months, we were able to generate actual real customers <laughs> yeah. uh, who pay, pay, who spent proper money with us. And, um, and was, there, was there somewhere in that three months that you thought um, this could potentially support me um, or was it much further on that that was still very much in startup mode and you weren't? that far advanced in planning and kind of realizing that this could be a, a full-time business. Yeah. I mean, I, I was at those for, the, for that period of time, I was kind of, I was working part-time as a maitre d'. Yeah. So whilst I was looking for my next move, so I had the time to spend on this and to kind of do it as I saw it, do it properly. And I just felt from after the first party, I felt there was something in it mm. and then there was some value in it. And then as more, as people became enthusiastic about it, then it became clear there was going, there was potentially a way of making money out of it. Um, but then it was, but then it was kind of like, it was, it, I basically kind of said to myself, I've got six months. I have to make this right. realistic. I, 
if this is going to be a real business, I'm going to give it six months. And if after six months I can't make it work, I just need to go and get myself a job. <laughs> so, you know, I was pretty driven <laughs> yeah. to kind of like, it was either make this work or go and get yourself employed because, you know, I want to go on holiday sometime. I want to, you know, <laughs> I want to, I want to be able to pay my rent. So it was, it was a, so it, for the first six months, it was just one great big push to see if something could happen. Um, and then after six months, I then quit my part-time job and then have been doing this full-time since then. Right. And were, were there any times in that six months that you, you doubted that you'd get to that stage that you could go full-time? Uh, no. Completely confident whole way. That it was always moving in the right direction. Yeah. not even. It's, I mean, the doubts weren't even – I mean – the best way of doubting yourself is to start is to by allowing yourself to have doubts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like six months. I mean, yeah. You know, let's go, 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 go. And if it's not going to work, it's not going to work. But I'm going to give it six months, and you know, and just focus on that. And was it a few months in that, um, as you, as you say, you were, you were no longer just friends coming, and you and you weren't relying on say friends to to help you staff the event as well. It was literally all marketing. Um, and presumably a, a lot of that must come organically from word of mouth, given the unusual locations that, um, that you've had yeah. everyone's going to tell somebody. Well, London was a very different kind of, had a very different kind of food landscape at the, in 2010. Mm. You know, the idea of going to people's houses to eat food that the person in that house has cooked for you was a new idea. Supper clubs are a new thing. Yeah. What we were doing I was, you know, we have always called what we do dinner parties. The idea of pop-up restaurants were kind of around, but not really a thing. Street food was not really a thing. It was kind of a thing that people were doing, but not not what it is today. And so we were able to really catch a wave of interest into alternatives to standard bars and restaurants where people wanted to spend their money. And in that first three months, we put a, a Facebook group as it was then before it was pages a little three page website we were able to do a deal on getting hold of a kitchen for free we were able to kind of uh, open a little one-seater restaurant inside of someone's nightclub <laughs> we did our first private dinner party we did a, we did a brand event for a cigarette company and so in those first and all of these things just came we you know our only marketing channel was facebook and a little e-newsletter I was doing in the first three months. And by applying what I knew had worked in whilst to market and grow a business professionally for other people into my own business in these first three months, that was, you know, that was what allowed the business to grow. And, you know, and we got a lot, a lot of support along the way. Mm. And, and to going on what you've just said, do you think, You've you've grown it um, as a combination of word of mouth and Facebook advertising. Would you feel Facebook advertising is um, or Facebook in general has, has driven to where you are now? Facebook has been a, a huge huge help to us, um, and we only started kind of when. But it's kind of like the Facebook has developed alongside our business. There yeah. was no such thing as Facebook advertising yeah. when we started. Mm. But by using Facebook as a place where we could talk to people at the very earliest stage and help us sell tickets, pass on information about where we might be operating, um, attracting new staff, um, attracting new customers, giving our customers the opportunity to share details about us with our friends. I guess we were at the kind of 
you know, we're a part where as Facebook was kind of growing the sharing <laughs> facility, we, you know, we benefited from that. So it's been super, 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 super valuable to us to start with and still is now when we use it more kind of, we use it, you know, we, we now use it's more kind of corporate um, capacities as well. Mm. And um, so restaurant food in, in surprising places, Do tell us a little about the, the surprising places um, where you've had the disappearing dining club because that sounds absolutely amazing. Well, I mean, basically we feel we can turn anywhere into a great place for dinner party. Mm. Um, there are very few things that we can't, you know, from our festival days, we would, you know, I knew my, I would be employed to go into a field where there would be nothing apart from rain and mud. And then I would have three days to open up a, a London standard bar, restaurant, cocktail bar, takeaway nightclub or whatever. Mm. So if you were, you know, if you do what, if you do what the important stuff, well, you can make anywhere a great place for dinner party. So, you know, initially we started using empty pubs, uh, nightclubs that were kind of closed or, we were using them when, on nights so that they weren't open. Uh, gallery spaces. Then we kind of moved into kind of we needed bigger spaces, warehouses, rooftops, um, uh, big private apartments. There used to be a flat in in um, in Dalston that we used to use, where in the lounge in this apartment you could fit 150 people for dinner wow. in this one bedroom flat. So we used we used to rent that. Um, warehouses out in Hackney, a huge. Um, warehouse out in Docklands with a with London's last surviving lighthouse attached to it hmm. um over five floors of little independent department stores um clothes shops uh, antique shops architectural salvage yards um you know at the end of the day we need to be able to set up a kitchen so we can cook food and we need to create an environment where guests can feel confident and relaxed and know that they're going to get looked after that we can make sure the place is warm, that we can make sure the place smells nice, that we can deliver the food as it should be served and people can feel comfortable and have nice music and, you know, all the tricks of the trade when it comes to creating ambiance. Mm. So we just kind of look look for spaces that we feel add character and provide a great backdrop for people to have a nice time and then we apply food, drink and hospitality to that space. And you, you at the stage now where... Uh locations are being offered to you or do you still spend a lot of time sourcing locations um it, the business grew from my kind of love of knowing places that other people didn't in london um but now it's much more the case that people come to us uh there's a huge i guess again this is a part of maybe our, our own fault but there's a huge commercialization now of, of space and empty space mm. because everywhere now is a potential event space whereas when we started we would borrow we would borrow a you know a photographic studio in shoreditch for we would rent it for 250 quid uh for one night that same space is now five thousand pounds for a night yeah it's you know so the the market has changed so there's a commercial there's been a commercialization of empty space and then we as a business have had to kind of adapt and change to that because throwing a dinner party for 50 people buying tickets from us uh, uh, that would cover a certain amount of food and then people buying their own drinks, we used to be able to make money out of that. Mm. Now it's much more difficult. And how have you gone about scaling the team? Because assuming it was 
just yourself to start with and, and asking friends to help out at that first event what was like the first hire you made and uh, have you scaled that as you've um, over the last seven eight years so the, the key thing was getting um the right chef partner mm. um so um i worked with two chefs along the way before i started working with fred uh, who is my who's a full business partner now within the business mm. so he kind of joined us six months in uh, just to kind of help out as I needed a chef because I'd kind of fallen out with the one I was working with before. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Fred provided, an, uh, you know, an extra level of quality, not only in the food, but also in terms of the planning and the execution of the kitchens and brought great chefs with him and made the vision possible in many ways on the food side. Um, we then... We'd worked together previously in restaurants, um, and then we worked together kind of casually, as, as, if you like, um, as you know, as kind of friend partners for six months. Uh, so that take, took us into a one year of our trading history, and then at that point, he became a full partner. So getting Fred uh, into the business and becoming a major part of the business was you know, has been the, has been the thing that's kind of enabled me to grow everything else. Um, and then along the way we kind of, uh, we have a core group of people who, again, in most cases I've worked with them professionally in the past, um, who've worked for us part-time, um, or work for us on a freelance basis. So we as a team can be fairly tight at quieter times, but then we can scale up depending on the demand. So, yeah. you know, uh, in a, you know, it might you know, a bit our busiest Christmas month, for instance, um, we had two full-time restaurant operations on the go. We had, uh, and on our busiest kind of Christmas event day, we had seven different um, seven different kind of pop-up Christmas events happening in seven different locations, including two London and two, including two UK cities, in addition to the the two restaurant sites. So. That's that's a big big team, looking at, looking after over fifteen hundred people on a, on one particular day in all those different locations. So that requires a big big team. So again, we just we kind of scale up and scale down depending on, you know, what we what we need to do with a bunch of freelancers, part timers, occasionals, and our core full timers. And do you think that's one of the, the hardest things to get right is is hiring the right people? Uh, yes and no. Um, yes, because particularly I think in food businesses, um, the, you know, the people there's with hospitality you need, and particularly in the kind of business we have, the people we work with need to have a willingness and a determination to make sure our guests have a great time every time. So it's really, really difficult to find people who are always motivated by that. Um, so yes, it's always a struggle, but we look after people. We're a good employer. We pay well. We pay properly. We look after our staff. We look. We look after the welfare of the people. And the majority of the staff that we've got working with us this Christmas will have worked with us over the previous six or seven. Um, and so it's kind of like it's the responsibility is on us to be a great employer. So people want to be employed by us when we need them. And presumably, as you say, the, the landscape has changed markedly in your industry since 2010. And um, 
other people are going to be or try to do what you what you're doing um what do you think separates you from the others in your industry at the moment um that we are we consider ourselves to be a real restaurant company at the moment we have little quiet which is our restaurants in barbican mm. and that is the kind of the heart and the home of everything we do and all of the things that we think are important at little quiet we feel are important at anything else we do wherever wherever we operate which is about the quality of service quality of food quality of drinks and the and you know the quality of the environment and how we look after people so what we what we are is a restaurant company we're not an event company doing catering we're not a theatrical company doing food uh we're not a party company doing um uh, looking to do a food operation and to and to kind of attract people using food we're a restaurant company that tries to attract business by doing good things in the right way um and that i think is the thing that really has separated us out over the last eight years or so when we kind of we're not the first pop-up restaurant company but we're amongst the first mm. and of the people that were kind of in the first wave with us there are maybe a couple of people out there who are still doing it and a couple of people who've then gone into more permanent full-time restaurant world only. Yeah. But all over the years, we've seen so many people who think that what we do must be easy <laughs> and discovered that it's just not. Food is not an easy way of making money. Yeah. And because Fred and I, this is our world. We're lifers in this industry. <laughs> this is, <laughs> we still both get up in the morning and our imperative is to serve people and to look after them and to make a living out of it. I think, I think that's really, really important when it comes to why we're still trading, why we're still growing, while we're, why we're still doing interesting and innovative new things, um, and whilst we're still attracting new business, you know? Mm. And, and what, what do you feel the most important thing you're, you're working on right now is? Um, so Little Quiet is a fantastic new restaurant for us. We have this space until 2019. Uh, maybe we'll have it a little bit later. We're, we're speaking to the landlord about that. We also have a, 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 our, our studio, which is Studio DDC, which is in Hoxton. Um, and those, we've got that space until 2020. So we've got a, a nice, great, uh, a fantastic private dining and event space. And we've got a great restaurant. So the two, uh, the two sides of our personality are really well kind of uh, are really fulfilled at the moment. So for us, it's about growing and keep building our clientele and uh, and people who know about us through those two spaces, and then along the, and then the next project is about finding another a space that we're able to. What we'd really like to do is find a space where we're able to kind of uh, explore both of those sides of who we are, but in one location. Mm-hmm. And maybe that would be a, a permanent site. You know, maybe that's a place with a twenty-year lease, yeah. Um, yeah. where we're able to still do events, still throw parties still explore and grow ourselves as a restaurant, um, you know, and, and bring all of the various parts of our business together under one roof. That might, that would be a really good fun thing to do, I think. Awesome. Well, re- really enjoyed hearing the story. Um, and before we go, I know it's going to be a busy chat with everything that's going on, but um, for those listening, what are the easiest ways to, um, to connect with you and uh, come and sample what you offer? So through the disappearing uh Dining Club website, which is www.disappearingdiningclub.co.uk. Then through there, you'll be able to access what we do for ticketed dinners. We'll have a New Year's Eve party coming up. You'll be able to book 
at Little Quiet, which is the best place to come and see us and experience our food, um, or via the Facebook page and just say hello and, and, and have a chat. Well, clearly Stuart's Disappearing Dining Club isn't your typical supper club. I'd like to say he was an early disruptor, really, in his industry. Um, what can you take from Stuart's story and apply to your industry, to your business? What can you take that's already established, has uh, very much set parameters as to how it's perceived and how it operates, and maybe look to disrupt that, put your own slant on it? Um have a think about that and imagine the customer feedback, the referrals that get people talking to your friends, family, um, about your business, um, creating the experience um, as such that Stuart creates with with each event that they do. Um, let's get so many people talking. If everybody tells nine people about a good experience or whatever the stats are, um, imagine how many people must tell after coming to one of these events, having dinner in a, in a light house, for example. Um, so again, you know, how can you apply this in, in your business, get people talking about your business, telling family, friends, complete strangers by becoming massive raving fans about your business. Um, lots to take away there. And to let you know, we now have finished all of our live events for 2017. I think we did 13 in total. Um, and we're already planning for 2018. If you haven't been to one of our live events, you simply must come. Um, we have them in Bournemouth and Brighton, and we're now expanding to Manchester, Southampton next year, among other locations. Easiest way to grab a ticket. We've just literally... Uh, announced our first event, live event of 2018, which is on January the 24th at our amazing uh, HQ, this workspace in Bournemouth. And we've announced the first speaker, which is secret millionaire James Benamore from the Rich Richmond Group and Amigo Loans. Um, we've done over a billion pounds in business since they started over a decade ago. And at our live event, you get to ask these entrepreneurs your questions so whether you're a startup whether you're scaling it's a massive opportunity to to listen uh, but also to ask questions yourself so all you need to do is go onto the eventbrite program um, search for the virgin startup events and you'll be able to find january the 24th in bournemouth from just five pounds so and the last thing to let you know about remember now we are twice a week so we now have our Saturday startup slots, easy for me to say, and I hope to have you on there this coming Saturday as well. Thanks for listening. If you'd like the opportunity to attend one of our live events with some of the world's leading entrepreneurs, just go to startupu.co.uk and click on the events calendar. That's startupu with the letter U. From there, you'll be able to see what live events we've got coming up and book a ticket from as little as £5, which includes a complimentary drink and the opportunity to network with like-minded entrepreneurs. Hope to see you soon. If you're an entrepreneur looking for funding, mentoring or support, go to startupu.co.uk. 
And if you'd like to share your startup story, we'd love to hear from you. Just go to the contact page on startupu.co.uk and we'll be in touch. And if you like this podcast, please subscribe and I'd love it if you left me a review of the show. To connect with me personally, you can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook at Alex Chisnell. Until the next show, remember, don't wait. The time will never be just right. Action always beats intention. This show is brought to you by RocketSpark, who make it easy for anyone to build a great-looking website. Each month, RocketSpark offer one lucky listener the opportunity to get a website absolutely free for the next six months to do some in-market testing of a new idea. Just go to rocketspark.com slash screwitjustdoit to enter. Oh, 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 oh